0: And we were, we we're studying uh, the history of the church, the beginning of the church, the origin story of the church in Acts chapter 8. We'll continue that conversation tonight. Acts is all about the history of the church. It's about the church kickstarting starting and uh, uh, moving um, at a rapid pace to grow there in Jerusalem. But we're at a crossroads in Acts because it's about to uh, go beyond Jerusalem. And uh, Acts 7-8 is that crossroads where things begin to branch out. If you'll remember last week, our message title was called Breakout. Um, as the gospel was about to break out of its bounds in its home territory, in its convenient territory, where it all made sense, but it was about to go to places that were uncharted. Um, in, in terms of uh, just saturation of the Bible and, and history of, of Israel, uh, but the gospel was greater than those things. It was going to be able to reach people all around the world. Uh, the title of our message tonight is Outbreak, of course similar uh, to breakout, intentional I would say. Uh, now these words are symmetrical, but they actually suggest the opposite of one another. Now they can have similar meanings in some instances, but I want to emphasize how they are really kind of opposite of each other. When we hear the word breakout, most of the time, or, or at least in this instance, I would like you to, we think about something positive. Uh, We think about a breakout movement, something that has sudden and extreme levels of popularity, um, which maybe you have, maybe you can think about something, uh, uh, an icon or some sort of um, brand or some sort of, you know, something that in your lifetime, it it was a breakout hit. It was a breakout phenomenon. It went from being unheard of to something that everybody couldn't stop talking about. There's been a few of those things in my lifetime. I'm sure there's many in yours that you can recount, things that you became a fan of maybe overnight, um, whether it was a a band or a, some sort of um, ideal or something that uh, would be considered a breakout hit um, in film and television. Uh, there are such things as breakout characters, uh, usually someone that was not conceptualized as a lead of the show, uh, but by some organic or, or because they developed chemistry or ongoing chemistry in, in the show, the the character kind of broke out and became, if not the main star. So, Act Seven is uh, about breakouts. It's about the church having a breakout moment um, in, in two ways. Uh, Stephen is clearly the breakout character. Of course, he's a historical figure, but in the context, in the narrative, he's a breakout character. We don't hear about Stephen until midway through Act 6, and by the end of Act 7, he's a hero, right? He's a bold martyr for the Christian faith. Stephen is this breakout character, unexpectedly filling a role. He was called on to wait tables, right? But he broke out as a preacher of the gospel that uh, Really, in his sermon, he was prophetic, talking about how the church was going to do more than just cater to its base or stay in Jerusalem, which speaks of another kind of breakout. The church was about to break out. Um, from its Jerusalem um, context to the whole world. Uh, the church's breakout moment, not in so much as what happens in Acts 7, because it's a kind of a dark moment for the church. Stephen is killed. Uh, he is stoned to death outside the city, and the people mourn at his passing. But it's what Stephen says that suggests a breakout is on the horizon, uh, because it's what he says that confirms the church's true potential and the true mission. And based on his convictions— The church appears primed and prepared to break out from Jerusalem and fulfill the Great Commission. Remember Acts 1-8, you will go to Jerusalem and beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They thought they would never make it past Jerusalem. Why would you need to, number one? But would it even work, number two? Both of those things would be confirmed uh, to to be true, that the gospel could take on the world with no hitches at all. So as chapter 7 turns over to chapter 8, the church is going to get a little help and breaking out beyond the walls of Jerusalem, but not the kind of help you'd want. Uh, As we'll discover, the kind of help they had been told was coming, the kind of help that would very much propel the church forward, but what they would dread, definitely. At the end of Acts 7, we're introduced to another breakout character, not on the good side of things, but on the opposite side, on the opposing side, we're introduced to another breakout character in his own faith, Saul of Tarsus. We know him as a Jewish scholar studying under Gamaliel. He was a a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He could quote the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He was passionate about his Jewish faith, so passionate that he became a Christian bounty hunter, uh, volunteering to hunt down the Christians and persecute them in the name of the Jewish God. Uh, Wanting to stamp out this Christian movement. If he wasn't already, Stephen's message radicalized him to a tipping point. So Saul became the church's biggest enemy. Even he was given the approval by Jerusalem and more importantly by Rome to quell this attempt to dismantle Judaism because clearly Stephen posed a threat. The gospel, Christianity, posed a threat to Judaism. Under Saul, there would be an outbreak of persecution uh, the church had experienced minor instances, but it was on a very small scale. Yes, they were beaten, but they weren't killed. But now, now Stephen's death was the sign of things to come. Uh, it would not just be threats and hardships. It would be an onslaught, uh, an attack, an outbreak of persecution, but its enemies, the Jewish council, they needed permission to take things to another level because the Jewish people weren't allowed and weren't given authority to persecute uh, or to kill people uh, in this time, in this day and age. They needed Rome's approval. It, it was it, They pushed Stephen over the edge, causing him to confess that he needed or that he indeed saw Christianity as something new, something opposing Judaism. Uh, so it allowed the Jewish people to say to Rome, listen, this isn't just a spin-off movement of our own. This isn't like the Sadducees and the Pharisees Season, the Christians, this is something that threatens us, and it's something that you met you best quell because they believe in Jesus not just as their leader religiously, but as their king. You killed him, so we need to kill these people that followed him because they could pose a threat not just to us, but to you. So Rome made room for the Jewish religion in its or in its early days of conquest uh, because they respected its history, and the Jews really just would mind their own business. But uh, they were not about to let a new movement rise up. Especially one that endorsed the radical uh, they had just crucified, and Stephen proved to the Christians, or proved that the Christians they were counterculturalists. They would tear down and reshape the world in their image if they were given the leash. So Saul of Tarsus appealed to both the Jewish authorities and Roman authorities that they should get rid of this movement before it gets any bigger. So under Saul's zealousness, an outbreak of government-sanctioned and sponsored persecution would roll out. And that begins in Acts chapter 8. Look at your Bibles, Acts 8, verse 1 through 3, as we're introduced, uh, reintroduced to Saul, and we're given some detail about his mission. Now, Saul was consenting to his death, Stephen's, at the time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now, underline at Jerusalem because it wasn't anywhere else. Key for this this chapter coming up they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him so we see this this uh, this mourning over Stephen but we also see this scattering of the church necessary uh, in in the context but still nonetheless a scattering As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering house to house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison, putting them to death. Now, it's not a coincidence that verse number 1 also mentions Judea and Samaria. If you look at Acts 1 verse number 8, you see Jerusalem mentioned, you see Judea and Samaria mentioned. The church at this point is only in Jerusalem. But as of verse 1 of chapter 8, it begins to spread Judea and Samaria. But not the way they maybe had intended on spreading. But based on this story, we don't see them intending on spreading at all until they have to because of persecution. So maybe you see where this is going. Um, unintended consequences but also God's intentions all along the church would begin to spread now here in Acts 8 we're told of a coordinated effort between Roman officials and Jewish authorities to stamp out the church and here we find the church at this tense place I can't overstate the word tense So much potential. I mean, we've seen what they've done so far. Preaching the gospel, 5,000, 3,000, many people healed, lives changed, saved, the church is growing, baptisms and and, and defiance, to the authorities, boldness in front of the courts. These people have so much potential, but they have so much pressure on them. Not just pressure from the persecution angle, but also pressure in terms of what Jesus had said about them and what Jesus said would come from them. So, I want you to think about that. Now, we've covered the scripture. Jesus told them to expect trouble. I don't need to recount that. We've talked about it extensively from Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 21. Jesus said, You should expect trouble. He also told them the trouble should not be feared. Jesus spoke on a higher plane, if you will, not that he didn't care for their well-being. He did. He loves people. He doesn't want people to suffer. Yet, Jesus has a bigger picture in mind than the things that we often preoccupy our minds with. When Jesus asked the disciples to trust him, he said, I want you to step up to this higher plane with me, that by trusting in me, you can be ambassadors for the kingdom of God and be used to bring about God's plan for the ages, God's means of redemption, the church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to build it through y'all. Jesus asked them to trust him, asked them to agree that they had nothing to fear personally. His own resurrection proved that, guaranteed that. So we know they were fearless. They stood up and said, listen, we have nothing to fear. We saw you kill a man and he rose back to life. We have nothing to be afraid of. They weren't afraid of dying, but they did carry an even greater weight. On their shoulders. The weight of carrying this torch, the weight of adorning this mantle, ushering in this brand new era, this brand new movement. Jesus had given these men the keys to the kingdom, Matthew chapter 16. And this was not lost on them how sacred and how holy this calling on them was. And here all of a sudden there's a risk that it's going to just blow up right in front of them. And even with all that pressure, Jesus had promised them, so this is what grounds them and actually what propels them forward. Jesus had promised them trouble will not threaten you it cannot threaten you and if you will trust me and this is such a precious place that so many of us just lack the faith that we need to to see the, the one thing lead to another he says trouble will not threaten you but if you will trust me this trouble will actually take you farther than you could go otherwise Now, this is a place that many bow out. Many Christians say, not for me, I'm out. I don't want to go through any trouble, so I'm just going to wait until it passes by. That's for you to decide. But the disciples had to make this decision, and thankfully they made the right one. If they would just trust him, they could experience something spectacular. But can you imagine how they felt at this point? Stephen martyred, standing up, uh, and, and not, very, not dissimilar to what they'd been preaching. He leaned a little bit more into the fact that Christianity was something brand new. But Peter could have been in his shoes. John could have been in his shoes. James could have been in his shoes. It could have been any one of them. Yes, it was Stephen, the deacon they appointed to serve tables, and here he is dying for his faith. It became real to them that they might not just get beaten and not just be arrested, but they could die. Yet Stephen wasn't afraid when he was being stoned. And they had to make a decision. Not only are we going to be afraid, but are we going to believe what Stephen just preached? Are we going to stand for what he just stood for and died for? Are we going to sit here in Jerusalem? Or Are we going to take this show on the road? And maybe now we have to. Can you imagine how they felt? The potential versus the pressure, which would prevail? Which will define them? Because, if their potential would define them, there's a rest of the book of Acts. If pressure would crush them, there's no more. Would they be preserved in this trial or would they be persecuted and would they be put to, death, put to death, put to an end? With that framing of this chapter, with the introduction of Saul's coordinated attack on the church, and we hear this scattering begin to take place. First, I think it's very clear in Acts 8.1, they're scattering because of fear, because of panic. But then it begins to change. Because they realize this is a potential opportunity, listen to verse four through eight. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So it's no doubt they were running because they didn't want to die. I mean, let's just be honest. They they were running because there was a threat against them. They could not meet for worship because they would be killed before they got through the first song. They were running because they were avoiding death, but they weren't afraid. Because they kept preaching the gospel as they went. Very important to make note of. They went preaching the word as they went. Then Philip, remember the deacons? We talk about Stephen. He died for his faith. Here comes Philip, who clearly wasn't discouraged by Stephen's martyrdom. Says, hey, I'll, just, I'll do this too. Hey, he, I mean, there's more to this than just waiting tables. We might actually have a ministry here. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, I don't know if he went there on purpose or was just running from wherever he, whatever was after him, yet he ended up in Samaria. And what did he do in Samaria? Preaches Jesus to them. Funny how it works. You'll go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and here is Philip in Samaria. The multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy. I bet there was. There was great joy in that city. So what we see is a classic example of truth taking down terror. The truth that God promised them, the truth of the movement, the power of the movement says, Terror, you're not going to win. We're going to keep doing our job. Yeah, we're going to move here and there because we don't want soldiers to ravage and come into our houses and take us to prison because we have a job to do. And our job involves preaching and it also involves going. The truth that Jesus had given them, the promise he made to them, the church would not only survive trials, it would thrive in them. So don't you see how all of a sudden the potential and the pressure begin to work together? The persecution begins to work hand in hand with the mission this might take us to an uncomfortable place, but we're used to that by now in Acts, aren't we? How would the church thrive in this trial? You might wonder that. I mean, you know, is this just a spin on, on, on a story that you can't do anything else with, or is that legitimate? How would the church thrive in this trial? Why and how is that? Now, Stephen's message makes it clear that the church was not tied to any single location. Isn't it true? Wasn't that in this whole message? He says, y'all are focused on the temple, you're focused on the religion, you're focused on the tradition. I can take it back to Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon. God's intention was to dwell in heart, and he's not just here for us, he's here for the world. And that's what the church is all about. So, as the church begins to move from Jerusalem, emphasis on it was stuck there, it was not going to move out of there, it was comfortable there, it was easy there, it was convenient there, but now they got to go. And as they move, they realize, you know what? Stephen had it right. God was ready to move wherever with whoever believed. God was not stuck in the temple, God was not stuck on a day, He was not stuck in a place, He was not stuck at a time. He was anywhere, everywhere with His people who believed. That's Christianity. So their scattering, listen to this, their scattering only fueled the legitimacy of their message. Not that they needed someone to approve of what they were preaching. They were right in God's eyes. But what was their message? You can receive the Spirit of God. You can have a relationship with God. Jesus is God in your heart, connecting you with your Heavenly Father. So what does their scattering and their preaching prove? That what Stephen preached was legit. God's not stuck behind the veil. God's not stuck behind a day. God's not only in one place at one time. He's in our hearts. And he went to these people who did not have the context that they had and showed them that they could believe too. That's what Stephen died for. They were away from all that gave the context of their faith, but the presence of God, the promises of God went with them. This only made them more bold and more confident in preaching that Jesus was Lord. And maybe they were, as they were going, they realized, wow, this is real. This is actually the case. Stephen was right. This is what we believe. Maybe they realized it as they were going. I don't care how they realized it, the fact is they did. And it was proven to be true. Now later on in Acts, this persecution is called Stephen's persecution, the persecution that began with Stephen. So not to blame him, the spreading of the gospel amidst the scattering of the church honored his martyrdom and affirmed his martyrdom. But I want to talk about persecution a little bit to take us home tonight. In a sense, though, persecution forced and forces the church to lean in and live up to its name or to our namesake. Now, let me explain that. Persecution forced the church to lean in to what they really believed. We believe God's with us no matter what. We believe He lives inside of us. We believe He's not stuck to a city, to a day, to a place. Hey, we better, we, we, we better believe that at this point. Because we might have just been saying that in the house to preach to big crowds, but now we're having to do it. So they had to lean into it. Do you see what I mean? Persecution forced them to put their feet on the ground and start living out what they had been preaching. And they lived up to what they had been preaching. Now, this last part might be a little... St- a little sticky, but I think it needs to be said. Persecution disavows complacency. As in, you know what? Yeah, you know, God says we should go and preach the gospel. God is for everybody. God can save anybody. God's in the hearts of people. You don't need to have this religion, that tradition, be that person. But you know what? It's just a lot easier if we just kind of sit here and do what we always feel good about doing and haven't ever done otherwise. Hello? I mean, it's Acts chapter 8, and they're already kind of getting stuck in their ways. They were complacent. And maybe they weren't, but they were getting that way. I think that's the implication. So what does persecution do in this moment? It says, you know what? You cannot be complacent. you got to go. If y'all want to live, you want to serve God, then you got to do it somewhere besides here. And it also disregards prosperity. As in, there's no, there's no way of having it so good that you can't be persecuted. No amount of money is going to keep you from being facing this problem no amount of prosperity was going to keep the church from facing this persecution so it challenged their complacency it came it approached their prosperity or their you know what they got comfortable with and said listen that stuff isn't going to keep you from going through this trial so it demanded total faith and total delight in jesus christ it made them lean in and live up to what they believed and who they believed in i got to say this the church in america has seen plenty of prosperity We've settled into complacency, and our faith and delight in Jesus must come into question. Are we leaned into, and do we live up to our namesake? Persecution forces us to look in the mirror, and it holds us accountable, and it's in this renewal that we experience, and this fire is lit under us, and it requires us to consider our mission, and it makes us ask the question, you know, what are we really here for, and are we really being obedient to it? As we are driven from our comfort zones, if we are faithful witnesses, we will impact and influence a greater and unexpected audience. Isn't that what happens here in Acts 8? Now, of course, we don't pray for it. Let me make it very clear. We don't pray for persecution. If anybody does that, then lay hands on them and pray for them. Do not pray for that because that's just a little bit, you know, a little bit crazy. No offense. So we don't pray for persecution. Don't get me wrong. We don't pray for problems. Who does? We pray to avoid problems. Of course we do. But we do pray for growth and opportunity, don't we? We pray for God to do whatever it takes to grow his church, or I hope you do. And sometimes that means persecution will come. Now, we've never seen it as bad as they saw it, but we may see it in our own way. We may be seeing it in our own way now in terms of a cultural marginalization. We'll talk about that in a minute. It means that persecution will come. Any pastor or Bible teacher that claims persecution is avoidable or contrary to God's will is lying to you. Let me just make that very clear. You can find somebody that will tell you otherwise, but I'm not them and I'm not lying to you. Persecution, yes, is a product of a fallen world. It's not ideal. But it is a fire used to wake a static church. That's what we see in Acts 8. Persecution was used by God used by God to wake a static church, and it's a catalyst meant to counter outbreak with breakout. Outbreak of evil with a breakout of good. So is persecution God's will? Not his perfect will. He doesn't want us to suffer. He doesn't want the world to break, but it's broken. But as a sovereign God, he uses it. That's what he's doing here. He uses it as a fire to wake a complacent church and as a catalyst to counter outbreak with breakout. It's in this way that we see that God is sovereign over persecution as he causes it to serve his mission. 1 Peter 4, 13 and 16, look at this. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, I think that's referring to his coming again, but I also think it's referring to what happens when we endure the trial, that there is a glory of God we get to witnessing experience if we are obedient and we are enduring the trials we're facing as in not bowing out not hiding not giving up not throwing our hands up not complaining until it's gone verse 16 hits it yet if anyone suffers as a christian let him not be ashamed what's that mean as in keep on keeping on keep on being one and what does it mean to be a Christian? Obviously, to live godly, but in this context, to go to the world. Because what was the consequence if they were to go to the world in Peter's Rome? Nero Caesar was burning Christians on fire. So, hey, if I'm going to witness to you, let me just go ahead and tell you, if you become a Christian, you're liable to be lit on fire tomorrow. So, a little bit more weight than hardships in America, right? You, want, you should be a Christian, but let me remind you, if you become a Christian, we're liable to be set on fire tomorrow, but hey, we'll be okay But that's the context of it. But Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed Doesn't Keep on keeping on. Keep on preaching the gospel. Let him glorify God in that name, in the name of Christ, in the Christian brand that we bear. So how can you glorify God as a Christian? Preach the gospel. How do you glorify God? Win more people to Jesus. So what are they doing in Acts? As they are persecuted, what do they decide to do? Verse number four, they're going to preach as they are persecuted. Take the opportunity to lean into and live up to your namesake. Model and preach. Now, it's going to get a little fun. If it hasn't been fun, it's going to get real fun in the next five minutes. i got to say this. The New Testament never assumes or imagines Christians dominating culture. It doesn't as in it never view it never had a picture of a world where Christians were on top, where Christians were in charge. I'm not saying that's against God's will, not saying that couldn't happen, but the New Testament never assumes it never imagines a, a Christian a Christianity or Christians dominating culture. That's why you read Peter and you read Paul and you think, man, why are y'all so into being, um, being oppressed and suffering and enduring? I mean, can't you just win? I, mean, I hear what people think. I know what people think. I've been approached before, but you know, with, with this sort of uh, you know, mentality. I mean, why can't we talk? Why can't we overcome the evil and dominate the evil? I mean, that's a good idea. I mean, but the New Testament never assumes or imagines that. What does the New Testament teach? We've heard it. We've already read it. It teaches and imagines a church that perseveres along and within the margins. We don't like the margins, do we? Let me just make an example. The margins are in the little tiny spaces where it's not very comfortable and there's not much room. Sometimes I'll finish my sermon and then I'll look at my notes and I'll realize that I left an important point out and I've got to write it in the margins. It's not fun when I'm up here looking at my notes thinking, man, why did I try to fit that in there? I can't read it. It's not fun to live in the margins. But in Acts, they live in the margins, and they make progress in the margins. It's from those margins that we make the most difference, reminded reminded that we are not in our permanent home, but yet we have a personal story and a powerful Savior to trust him. A few years ago, Matt Chandler, one of the best preachers um, on the planet um, for the last 20 years, Matt Chandler wrote a book um, called Take Heart. Uh, Chandler um, has been through his share of hardships, um, he's a powerful preacher out in Texas, but he wrote a book called Take Heart We're talking about how the church has seen a decline in its dominance over culture the last 20 years it's just the way it is he writes about how we don't need to panic but rather take heart in this moment of recess, in this moment of you know, being pushed in the margins, I want to share this quote with you, the church thrives on, in the mar- on the margins or in the margins. That's why our cultural moment right now in this era doesn't need to be viewed as depressing, not saying that it isn't easy to be depressed by, it, but he says we shouldn't be depressed by it. You say, well, convince me, Matt. But instead, it's exciting. It's not bad news. It's good news. We're now back in the place, emphasis on back in the place because this is where they were in the beginning, back in the place where we have always flourished best. Let me just say this delicately. If this disappoints us and if we're not willing to accept that this may be where God wants us, it might reveal some adultery in our lives. See, we often resist the margins. We decry the margins. We begrudge the margins. But it's in the margins we find our mission. Notice in verse five, Philip goes to Samaria, the very people that they never would have went to otherwise. That when Jesus went to Samaria, remember the disciples, what they did when Jesus went to Samaria? Hey, Jesus, we're going to go to the restaurant and we're going to get some food. It's going to take a long time for them to fulfill this order. As in, we're not coming to Samaria. We're not. So you do your thing, and when you come down that hill, we'll be waiting for you, and we'll see you, and we'll come meet you at the crossroads because we're not going there. Remember when James and John said, Hey, Jesus, you want us to burn those Samaritans? I mean, we've been praying this prayer about how God setting people on fire like Elijah did. Can we pray that prayer? I mean, what is wrong with y'all? That's what Jesus said. What kind of spirit do y'all have? It's not of God. So that's how they felt about Samaritans. There seems to be a connection between being pushed to the margins and intersecting with those that we would have avoided otherwise. Just a thought. That's not from God, that's from me, but maybe it is from God, you decide. And I'm going to say something that might be a little charged, but that's what I do, and I think it will resonate with us in a way that it's supposed to, the way it did back then. Because I want to talk about the Samaritan part of this strategy, or part of this story. What is a group of people that you feel are most unlike you and farthest from you? And it can be their fault, of course it's their fault, right? that what is the what is a group of people it might be groups of people i don't know what is a group of people that you feel like there is so unlikely of an intersection to ever happen when you in them now for the jews let me make it clear clear the jews it was a race issue the samaritans were descendants of the Jews but they had intermingled with the Assyrians and the other people in the Middle East so the Jews thought they were superior because of their ethnic cleanliness you know because of their superiority so it was a race racial issue it just was it was also religious it was also cultural so the Jews were a little holy about it well yeah we don't like their race but we also don't like their religion and we think that they don't do things right so yeah we, we're not being racist we're just being righteous <laughs> now for us I don't know your heart But Samaritan, for us, may be some Christian denomination we disagree with. I mean, I grew up in a church that disdained anybody that wasn't Baptist, and they didn't really like other Baptists. I mean, they hated Southern Baptists, and they hated any other Baptist that wasn't them, and they didn't know what kind of Baptist they were. I mean, I'm one of them people. I'm not judging them. It may be, you know, I grew up in Catholics and Lutheran. everybody Everybody was the problem. And I'm not, you know, I know that there's a way to believe that is right, but I'm talking as Christians... Maybe there's a group of Christians or a group of people that pretend to be Christians. I don't know that you would say that they're in the Samaritan category. I mean, God forbid, it. maybe it's a racial group that you have an issue with. I don't know your heart. I hope it's not, but it could be. Maybe it's people from another faith that you just could never see yourself going to or dealing with or intersecting with. Muslims, atheists, I don't know. But imagine instead of Samaria, it said those words. It was, they went to the Muslims, went to the atheists, went to the Catholics. I mean, hey, maybe it was some political group that they didn't agree with. Maybe it would say liberals or socialists. I mean, I'm just reading the room. I know what it would say if it was we were put the words there. There's nothing wrong with being honest. If, it, you know, if I was talking to people on the left, I would say Samaritan could be capitalist or conservative or whatever. That's how charged Samaritan was in their day. That's how unlikely it was for them to go there. Now, what... But don't you see the purpose of the persecution in this instance? It stretched the church. It sent them to the margins. Now, I know what you got to say to this. I got to say the same thing to this. I wrote this down because I thought it. I have nothing in common in any of these people. I mean, why would I go to them? They don't like me. if, If I'm being honest, they treat me with contempt. It's not just that they're unlike me or not like me or worse than me. I mean, they hate me. I'm not going to go to the Samaritans. I mean, they don't like me. They talk bad about me. That that may be true. Listen, none were opposed to one another more than the Jews and Samaritans. And the Jews had every biblical reason to avoid these people like the plague. And I know we live in a hypertense world where nobody talks to anybody that doesn't look exactly like them. I get that. Everyone feels as if everybody is their enemy, and there are plenty that may well punch on us given a chance. I, I know you think there's nothing in common with us and them, but what does persecution remind us all that we do have in common? Because persecution reminded Philip that he had something in common with the Samaritans after all. We share a fallen world. We share sinful hearts. See what happens when we're driven to the margins? We we realize that we have more in common. Fallen world, simple hearts. And the intention is to drive us to this out of this easy, comfortable place where we can hide and excuse ourselves from the rest. It's in the margins that we can discover that we have a common Savior. Now, Stephen didn't go to hang, or Philip didn't go to hang out and play ball with him, he went to preach. But you don't preach without love, and you don't preach without fellowship, and you don't preach without personal one-on-one compassion. This world may be trying to tear us down and break us down, but through Christ, we can all be built up and built together. It's in verse 5 that we see that the crowds listen. Isn't that what it says? The crowds, or verse 6, the multitudes with one accord heeded these things. So when Peter went, Philip went with this compassionate message of Jesus, they listened. You know what that teaches us? When we endure trials and embrace our mission, we gain a platform before the least likely. You say, well, there's nothing in common between me and them. There'll be no way I ever connect with them. But you know what happens when you endure trials and embrace our mission? You gain a platform of people that you didn't think you had one with. So don't you see this is why persecution is a God thing? Because there are people that you would never see yourself ever getting anywhere near, isn't there? Because they're unlike you and they don't want to hear what you've got to say. Isn't that true? But you know why they went to the the Samaritan people? Because of persecution. So now you see why it had to happen, don't you? it pushed them to the margins and it put them back to back the question becomes will we use the persecution we face well will we use our being pushed to the margins the way we've meant, it's meant to be philip doesn't go in preaching an anti-samaritan message also he goes in preaching the gospel the gospel and the fact about the gospel is every gospel message corners and targets every pathology and ideology of this world. He doesn't go in saying, y'all are wrong, I'm right. He goes in saying, we're all wrong. The Jews are wrong, Samaritans are wrong, everybody's wrong. Their polit- their politics are wrong, their worldview's wrong. We all got it wrong. Jesus got it right. That's why he made a difference. Verse 7 and 8, and we're done Unclean spirits cried out with a loud voice, came out of them that were possessed. Many that were paralyzed and lame were healed. So the point here is things happened. Change happened. Lives were changed, spiritually and physically. Verse 8, there was great joy in that city. I love how Luke says that city, the city that they never thought they would ever go to. It's crazy how the gospel can change people's lives, isn't it? It's crazy how the gospel can lead us to do things that we wouldn't do otherwise. I want to frame this for you big picture-wise. Persecution may have caused a minor inconvenience on the church. It scattered them. But what did it do? It brought about a major intervention for the world. I'm not picking on us, but we get so worried about inconveniences, don't we? God, remove it, remove it, remove it, remove it. But what about use it, use it, use it? God, I don't want to hurt. I don't want to suffer. I don't either. But if I'm reading the Bible and preaching the Bible and saying I want to do what they did in the Bible, I've got to say, God, I want you to get rid of it. But if you want to use it, then a minor inconvenience on me may make a major intervention on them, and I'm willing to do that for you. you read down I think verse 14 it says the apostles show up to see what's happening and they can't believe it let me tell you a secret when we commit to the gospel and lay our weapons down grace will surprise us in the difference it can make you believe that when we give what we've been given remember Jonah I don't want to go. I almost died. I want to go. I'm going to go preach the gospel. I go and I preach the gospel, and I didn't wish, I didn't realize they were going to believe. Grace will surprise you when you give what you've been given. When we are driven to the margins and we maintain our mission, we can accomplish miracles. That's what Acts 8, 7, and 8 tell me. We may suffer in the flesh, but God might deliver somebody else's soul. We may lose out, we may miss out, but others may gain or obtain for the first time their heart's true desire. I want you to look at the contrast real quickly between verse 8-1 and 8-8. Particularly, it says, great persecution rose out in Jerusalem. And then verse 8 says, great joy broke out in Samaria. You think there's something going on there? Great persecution and much joy. Great persecution in Jerusalem where it was all nice and safe drove the, go- drove the disciples in the gospel out of their comfort zone to Samaria. And what happened in Samaria? Great persecution led to great joy. Don't you see the connection? Driven from their base to the margins, they gained true ambition for their mission and true appreciation for their hope. The outbreak was merely a stepping stone for a breakout. It's clear, church, that our influence over culture is not what it once was. It may well be greater one day, but biblically, we're not promised that. We may get a president and a Congress and a whole world, nationwide revival where everybody says in Jesus' name and everybody wears, you know, dress clothes and goes to church on Sunday. I hope that happens. I'm not making light of that. It might happen. It could happen. I hope it happens, but it might not. And we may be the people that are in the center of the room getting awarded and recognized and appreciated, or we might get driven to the margins. The truth is, Christianity grows best under hardships. That's what Acts 8 proves. Christianity thrives in trials. There's no Acts 8, there's no Acts 9, there's no Acts 10, 11, 12. There's no us without Acts 8, without hardships, without persecution. Because in these trials we become our true selves. When the counterfeit is chased away, our obedience rises to the surface. In our obedience we find joy, even in the inconvenience. And others will see and hear the gospel more clearly and more purely than ever before. So may we make the most of the trials we endure. May we embrace the opportunity. May persecution not highlight the terror but magnify our treasure that they can't take away and the truth of our gospel which may well change their life before it's over with. That's influential against the backdrop of sin. So let's not lose heart. But let's take heart. We are the church after all. With a treasure and a truth that cannot be taken and that can only be given and will only multiply if we endure the trials we face. So remember this. Stephen died for this, and the church grew because of it. Think about that this week. Pray for great things, pray for peace and prosperity. But if persecution comes, if the margins are where we live, what will you do with that opportunity? Read Acts 8, see what they did, and try mimicking it. You just might change somebody's world. Let me pray for you. Father, again, easy to preach, hard to live. It wasn't easy for me to preach, what am I saying? God, this is contrary to what I feel and what is easy for me. Yet, God, I know that your word is true, and I know that the church's witness is right. And, God, I know that you have called us to be on mission, and persecution may well be propelling us forward. So, Lord, would you use this text to confront our hearts and confront our complacency and our, and our unwillingness, our fears, our fears? And use this text to inspire us to be obedient like the disciples were obedient. To consider people on the margins as we get pushed to the margins. To make a difference for the kingdom of God forever and ever to come. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.